This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello and welcome to the How To Academy podcast, the bi-weekly show from London's home of big thinking. I'm Vas Christodoulou. Luke O'Neill is a professor of biochemistry at Trinity College Dublin and one of the world's most respected immunologists, with six major discoveries to his name. He's also an infectiously enthusiastic broadcaster and advocate for science, and has become something of a celebrity scientist in his home country. He's also a newspaper columnist and the author of a wildly fun new history of science called To Boldly Go Where No Book Has Gone Before. We sat down to talk both about the book and his life in science. This is a podcast for everyone, especially any listeners who don't particularly have an interest in the history of science. Enjoy. Luke, Winston Churchill allegedly said history would be kind to him, for he intended to write it. And that is not the only thing you have in common with him. That's right. Thank you, Val, for, for bringing that up. Yeah, I want to be in a history of science, you see, in any way as if I write one myself. That's <laughs> the ultimate vanity, you might say, you know. So we thought that would be a good line to put in the book, it must be said. And I was asked um, by the publisher to include bits about myself in the book. And I was more than happy to do that, you see, because I'm a scientist, you know, and my various experiences feature here and there in the book. I bring in my own story, which is quite nice, you know. And uh, I will just add for listeners, the other thing you have in common with him is that you're both in the book of signatories of Fellows of the Royal Society. Very important. Thank you, Vaz, for reminding us of that as well. Yeah, that was a big thrill, obviously. FRS, although as I say in the book as well, my Irish friends say that stands for former research scientist, you see. So that's a bit depressing, but still, I'm happy to have the FRS after my name. It's a wonderful thrill, you know. Uh, Well, you are actually still doing research. And let's kick off by talking a little bit about your achievements as a scientist before we talk about the history of science. You're a biochemist and an immunologist. Were you blowing things up as a kid with a chemistry set? Tell us about that. Yes. Yeah, so my very first science story is when I was 12 years of age, my mother gave me a chemistry set for Christmas. Now, I bet you had one. We all have these chemistry sets. I did have one. I did have one, but I'm interviewing you on a podcast and have no achievements in it as a chemist, so it obviously didn't work for me. Didn't work for you. Yeah, that's right. Well, for me, it worked. It got me into science big time, you know. But the story is I got very bored adding a bit of magnesium sulfate to whatever, you know, and I decided to put all the chemicals together into one test tube. There was a little burner, a methylated spirits burner. I heated it up. There was an explosion. 
And my bedroom, there was a splat on the ceiling of this black material that I'd made. My mother came running up the stairs saying, what are you doing? You're blowing up the house. So I tried to blow up my house. So my very first laboratory was my own bedroom. And then my journey, uh, I guess, into science began. And I do track it to that, actually. I, lo- I love that chemistry set in the end. You know, I, lo- I like all the experiments and measuring things and watching chemical change happening. So that was the beginning. And then I became a biochemist. Because I think uh, biochemistry is biology writ large, the chemical basis for life that got my imagination next, you know. But ultimately, I specialised in the immune system and how the immune system works and the component parts and the chemistry of the immune system became a big focus for my lab, you know. And then I was lucky enough to make a few discoveries. And then they may be an FRS because of these discoveries. You got to make one or two big discoveries to be made FRS. Tell us about those discoveries. Well, I managed to discover a key on switch for the entire immune system. It's a protein called MAL, M-A-L. And when you're infected, MAL gets turned on, uh, mainly in macrophages. That's the frontline cell of your immune system. MAL gets flipped, the switch is flipped, and now the macrophage is turned on and begins to fight the infection. And MAL turned out to be quite important as a key master on switch for the immune system. My, my lab discovered that. My lab, that's just behind me as I talk to you now. I'm still very active. I've got 15 people in my group all working on macrophages and various aspects of the immune response to, to pathogens, including COVID and all kinds of things. So we're still very active in that area. Yeah, current and future research scientists. Thank you very exactly. much. Exactly. Good man. Thank you, man. Thank you. How much is your experience, your childhood experience, typical of professional scientists? I think it's very typical. Yeah, if you talk to anybody who's kind of made, made, uh, made discoveries, they'll often start with their school teachers. And I was no different. I had a fantastically, luckily, luckily enough, I had two inspirational teachers in school. My biology teacher, his name was Fran Mooney. He really got me. He, he was one of my heroes. Was, he was a young guy when he began teaching. I think we were his first class, actually. He was probably 26 years of age. But, but he was a big inspiration. And then my chemistry teacher, who had the lovely nickname Gutty. He liked, he liked to gut fish in the practicals and show us biology as well, you see. So we gave him the name Gutty. So yeah, you're right. Most of us scientists go, like many professions, it often starts with an inspirational teacher, you know, a Mr. Chips character, if you will, or Dead Poet Society, that kind of thing. You know, so we, we all got inspired by teachers in school and I was no different. The practice of science is so much about rational inquiry. And yet fundamentally, it is for you and many others driven by passion. Very much so. Oh, well, you have to be interested. It's a tough business fast to be in. I mean, if you're a scientist, you're getting ideas. You're in a lab testing them. Nine times out of ten, it doesn't bloody work. You know, now it mightn't work because your idea was crap or because you can't get the experiments to work. It's heartbreaking unless you're passionate and you want to get up every Monday morning and go in and keep going. You're, you're going to drop out, aren't you? So I think I think most scientists have this huge passion. The passion is very simple. It's just to find something interesting. I mean, what, what better job can you have than trying to discover something brand new? that nobody's ever seen before, and you're revealing some aspect of the natural world. And you can say, I saw that. So we saw Mal in that lab behind me. Now, it's about 20 odd years ago. To, to see something, I, I call this almost a Christopher Columbus moment where the missed parts and then you see something, you know? And that, that keeps you going. That, that, that discovery bit is what, what gets you up in the morning, I suppose. And you have to be passionate about some, some mystery, some scientific mystery in the world. And my, my big mystery in my lab is inflammatory diseases. We work, we work on things like Parkinson's. We work on lupus. That's the biggest mystery of all, what's causing those diseases. So, of course, the passion to try to find out answers to what's going on is, is a key driver here. Yeah, so let, let's just unpick that a little bit more. Curiosity and the desire to discover is... It's a big motivator for going into science and for the practice of science. But how do scientists choose their areas of research? And um, what other objectives, other than this kind of blue skies research curiosity, do scientists have? 
I think it starts with just dumb luck in a way, Baz. I was lucky enough again. I got, obviously I wanted to do biology. I picked biology, then I picked biochemistry. I was interested in this out of interest, you know. I was fascinated, for example, by evolution as a process that really got my imagination. Like how can all these creatures, the usual thing, Darwin and all that kind of stuff, you know. So it starts with just, just curiosity in a sense, you know. And then you pick something. You pick something based again on maybe a lecture you went to, in the university system, it's the professors that begin to hopefully inspire you and you all do that now, you know. But if I had an inspirational astronomer teaching me, I could have been an astronomer. I don't think, I don't think it's, it's not preordained anyway, if I can use that phrase. So in other words, you're drawn into things just out of interest. And I began reading, of course, very importantly, um, like we all did, you have to read stuff in your final year. And I began reading about the immune system. Oh, that's interesting. Scientific American was a big thing for me, actually, to be honest. I remember vividly reading, there was a whole issue of Scientific American in the late 80s about the immune system. And I read all those essays and that really got me, you know. And it's an intellectual satisfaction. It's no different than watching Countdown in the afternoon, Baz, in a way, you know. Like, why, why do we do puzzles? Why do we try and do crosswords? It's the same thing. You're, you're satisfied by solving a puzzle, really, you know. And then that keeps you going as well, the, the, the sense of satisfaction there. So that feeds into it too. I mean, ultimately, that was never enough for me. I, I couldn't have been an astronomer, actually, Baz. I don't really care if some distant gamma ray burst has happened as such. But imagine discovering something to treat rheumatoid arthritis or to help in a medical discovery. That, to me, became the add-on in the end, you know, and I began working on these diseases because I wanted, I wanted my research maybe to help patients ultimately as well, you see. So that was the other reason to, to, to go in that direction. And how much is science about the pursuit of creativity? I mean, we, obviously, we don't typically think of science as being creative in the way that we think of the arts and humanities as being creative. But I feel like that's just fundamentally wrong. Would you agree with that? Very wrong. I mean, to make a discovery, you've got to do something brand new. That, that's the essence of it. You've got to find something out that nobody's seen before, design an experiment that nobody's thought of before. It's the exact same as James Joyce writing A Stream of Consciousness. That was a new innovation, artistically, you know. And Derry mentioned Picasso, Cubism, whatever it is. I mean, those aren't that different to scientists. They're, they're doing something brand new. And they must find satisfaction in the newness, first of all. And they must think the new thing is actually useful in some way or satisfying in a different way or whatever. And they're moving the, the ball down the field, if I can use that analogy. Science is exactly the same. And you've got to be creative. Where do you think ideas come from? Like, what, what inspired Joyce to do his stream of consciousness? It was an idea he had, you know. He probably dreamt it. And as we know in my book, I mentioned this, but people, scientists haven't dream up experiments. Like the famous benzene ring, that was a dream the Kekulé had on the back on an omnibus in London, you know. So in other words, it, it comes from the subconscious mind often, these ideas in science, and, and the arts are the same. So I think they're very, very similar, actually. What makes them different, I suppose, is it somehow seems a bit sort of systematic, and it seems a bit like documenting things, and that seems boring, you know. But overall, I think the overlap between the two is, uh, is really important. Yeah, and scientists who don't theorise or come up with new ideas are nicknamed stamp collectors. They are. And we, are, we like that as well now. To be honest, that might make us different to artists. And again, in the book, I talk about one of my early passions was geology. I loved collecting all these rocks, you know, and laying them out in my bedroom again, all these different types of rock. And for some reason, that was comforting, I think, you know. So I think the stamp collecting aspect is probably to do with uh, the enormity of existence and getting comfort in classification. And, that, that, and, and the zoologists, remember the famous Linnaean classification, that to me was very satisfying as well. So I think maybe that, that's, that's what's going on there. It's a sense of uh, comfort in, in the enormity of things, really. You know? What do you think you would have done with your life if you hadn't been a scientist? 
uh, drugs. Now, if I was, what would I have done? You can do drugs and be a scientist. <laughs> well, you can do both, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> well, no more than our friend, uh, you, you remember Kerry Mullis, who discovered PCR. He said he was on acid when he was inspired to discover PCR, so you never know, you know. And, and many artists have been assisted, haven't they, in various ways? You know? I would be amazed if David Bohm never took acid. <laughs> no, that, that's right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I'm, a, I'm a big fan of the Beatles, as you know, Lucy in the Sky with Diamond. Now, getting back to the substantive question, what would I have done? I don't know. I, I probably would have been something in the knowledge game. I like knowledge, you know. And I could have been a teacher, full-time teacher maybe, or librarian, although they're all gone now, I guess. But uh, I'd love to have a, be a bookseller. Wouldn't that be a great thing to do as well? So th- those sorts of things. I, I guess I couldn't have escaped knowledge as a thing, you know, and, and getting a profession based on knowledge probably would have been where I would have ended up. Why pursue the biological sciences rather than medicine? Well, that's another... I, I, did, I, did, I was going to do medicine initially, actually, and I applied to get into medical school. And I was accepted and I turned them down. Can you believe My mother went mad. You're turning down medical school, you know. I think it's because I knew the answer would be through science. And I knew that uh, the real way to discover the basis for a given disease, you needed hardcore science there. So I figured I'll go down the science road, ultimately. That was towards the end of my undergraduate degree. Uh, I realised that was the thing to do because, because I knew there was so many unknowns. And especially when I began my journey as a PhD student in London in the mid 80s, we knew 10% of the immune system at that stage. We now know about 50, you know, over that time. So I knew if I, if I get stuck in there, I might make discoveries that might help them in the discovery of new medicines. And ultimately, the other thing that struck me, Vaz, was when I was uh, doing my PhD, if you're a doctor, you might help how many thousand patients in your lifetime? That's great. Discover a new medicine, you might help millions. You know? So I thought that might be the way to do it, you know. For most of history, Physicians did more harm than good. I don't think that's a controversial statement. No. How did that change? And how did medicine become a science? Some studies have shown it was in the 1920s that if you went to see your physician, he actually did more good than harm, right? Before the 1920s, they were doing more harm than good, you know. And yet again, science came in. They began using scientific methodologies, you know, to address things. And they began doing scientific analyses and so on. So there's no doubt science had a huge impact on medicine and was the reason for them doing more good than harm. Now, you wouldn't blame them. Back in the 19th century, there weren't that many options that physicians could use. They gave, they put a leech on you, maybe, or they purged you. You look my finger giving the action there, or whatever it was, <laughs> or they gave you some herbal thing. They did their best, you know, and they did help. Sur- surgeons did more good than harm, probably. But the physicians, at least the physicians, uh, they were trying to do a bit of science. And, and, and the science of medicine came from physician scientists. Let's never forget that, you know. And in fact, infectious diseases, that was very clever observation by physicians that knew there was germs were causing these things, you know. So, so they, they did make that contribution eventually. But I've no doubt it was science that made medicine... Uh, effective for us and continues to do that. This episode of the podcast is sponsored by Marquee TV. Marquee TV is an incredible streaming service that is a gateway to arts and culture. With my subscription, I've enjoyed watching some of the Royal Shakespeare Company's most acclaimed productions of recent years, including David Tennant in Richard II and Simon Russell Beale in The Tempest. I've seen multiple productions of The Ring Cycle and Thelonious Monk playing in Brussels in 1963. I've watched Alice in Wonderland at the Royal Opera House and Giselle at La Scala. Marquee TV really is the most accessible way into culture I've ever encountered and a treasure trove for any arts lover. You can try it for three months for just 99p. Yep, three months for 99p with the code HOWTO. Just visit marquee.tv and use the promo code HOWTO to dive into the world of the arts like never before. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey there, I'm Dr. Maya Shunker, and I'm a scientist who studies human behavior. Many of us have experienced a moment in our lives that changes everything, that instantly divides our life into a before and an after. On my podcast, A Slight Change of Plans, I talk to people about navigating these moments. Their stories are full of candor and hard-won wisdom. And you'll hear from scientists who teach us how we can be more resilient in the face of change. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So let's go back to the very beginning. How did life begin? Well, there's a good bet now, based on the fossil record, that life began about 4 billion years ago. We see the first traces of, of biological molecules, if you will, in the fossil record. The oldest bacteria in the fossil record is about 3.7 billion years ago now. So there was a start point. It had to be random chemistry allowed biochemicals to form, and they began to form into the first cell. And the first cell then had a way to replicate, you know. Now, the big mystery is how did all these bits get together? But to me and many of us, it's just simply complicated chemistry and the right conditions. And as you know, Vaz, it's a very relevant thing now with exoplanets and when any of them have the, what I call the Goldilocks zone, not too hot, not too cold. We know some of the criteria, you know, that you need for, for a cell to survive. So there's no doubt, maybe that's overstating it, it's very likely that life arose through very complex biochemistry. And then there's some evidence for this. You can create sort of uh, systems in a lab with very simple building blocks to make quite complex biochemicals just by doing that in a lab, you know. And leave, that, leave the test tube bubbling for 500 million years, you know. And then eventually, randomly, a cell will emerge is the idea. So there's our, our best bet at how life, life first started. You've written a very human history of science. And it strikes me at times that in a sense, it's a history of science for people who have never particularly been interested in science. Why is it important to write a history of science for people who don't care about science? And why should people care about science? There's about 53 reasons. How long have we got? So the first reason is this. Science is fun. And there will be people who have been put off. They could have been put off by a teacher or by their background or their socioeconomic state, whatever it is, they were excluded from this adventure. I want them to be included, bring them back in, you know, and bring them back in by doing it in this way. Science is fun. And as we know, Vaz, loads of whack jobs are scientists. So, so what I tried to do was do it through a little biographies, emphasizing the eccentricities of all these people, just because it's fun to read about, you know, Charles Babbage hated organ grinders, stuff like that, you know, whatever it is. So in other words, I might entice them through the, uh, the, the biographies is the first thing. The second reason is it's extremely important. And in a democracy, you want to have an educated people to make their own minds up about things, right? And if they haven't got educated through science, they can't make their minds up about vaccines or climate change or whatever the issues are. So I'm a, hu I'm a huge fan of science being important for democracy as well, you see. Inform the people and let them make their own minds up about big issues and who to vote for if there's an issue, you know. So I think science is also important for, for democracy. And then the third reason I want everybody to come to the party is uh, you might learn something new. You know, you might learn a new fact or a new thing and bore someone down the pub. 
and say, did you know X? And isn't that fun as well? So those are some of the reasons I would say why bring people to the science table. The worst thing in the world, Vaz, is if science is an elite bubble and it's full of scientists living in this elite sort of thing, that's disastrous for all of us, you know? And then the other, the last reason I gave you, Vaz, they've often paid for it through their taxes, remember, you know? So for example, in the UK, if you get a grant of the BBSRC, that's a taxpayer. So why don't you get the taxpayers, uh, let them let them know what you're doing and let, let them let them become involved in what they're, they're spending their money on. And that's another important aspect. I think. Putting aside Babbage and his loathing of organ grinders, which I think sounds entirely understandable, uh, what was <laughs> the most delightful fact about uh, a historical scientist that you uncovered running this book? Oh, well, one of my, Florence Nightingale, I always imagine was one of my favourites, right? So now we all know who she is, the lady with the lamp, you know, but she was a great statistician. And she was the first female fellow of the Royal College of Statisticians. They were all men, you know. Now, why was she a statistician? To prove to the politicians that they're all dying of infectious diseases in the Crimea, you know. And I love, there's two interesting facts about her about that. One is she was the first to use pie charts in an effective way. Because she knew the politicians couldn't read the tables of numbers. <laughs> so, so to make it easy for them, she drew a pie chart. These are all dying here, you know, these aren't. And the other thing I love is she had a pet owl. And she kept this owl inside her jacket, right? And occasionally at meetings, she would produce the owl. And they would go, oh, that's an owl. You know, owl back in the pocket. So she was probably, you know, an early utilizer of the magic owl, shall we say. You know, that, that, that little quirky fact I love about her is her owl and her statistics, you see. And again, the general public, they see her as the lady with the lamp. A wonderful thing to be known for, of course. But here's other bits to her. that I think, like, And just shows you about her as well, that's what I'm at it. Remember, her father was into education and he made sure his daughter got a science education and maths. Otherwise, she couldn't have done what she did. You know, you need to have an education. Like getting back to our, our previous uh, question there, about it's so important to bring people into science because then they can do other things beyond that, you know. And her, her father made sure that she was educated in mathematics and then she could devise the pie chart and statistics, you see. So again, it just shows you how important education is. Well, if any data scientists listening want a tip about how to jazz up their presentations, then... Bring an owl to your meetings is my advice to every scientist. Who are the unsung heroes of the history of science? And now you give plenty of acknowledgement to the big household names, the Newtons and the Einsteins, but who is yeah. due more public credit than they receive? There's loads and loads of them. There's one guy, right? Let's start with, I'm going to give the Irish plug, Vaz, the Irish, a guy called Percy Ludgate, an accountant working in Dublin. He wrote the first, what we now call as a subroutine for a computer program in the 1920s, long before... You know, we had the famous Alan Turing, for instance. He gets the credit for the first idea of a computer program subroutine, unsung hero, you know. Another one I, I love is uh, uh, Eunice Foote, this, this, this uh, climatologist in America. She was the first to uh, say that carbon dioxide and methane were greenhouse gases. And she proved it experimentally. She put gases in tubes, showed they could retain heat, you know. So Foote is another one that I like. And, and the quirky story about her is, one of her eccentricities was she hated squeaky shoes. For some reason, they annoyed her. Can you imagine? And she invented an insole to put into a shoe to stop it squeaking. Hence, foots, boots and shoes. That's a great dad joke there. But another unsung hero. And in fact, Tyndall, who gets the credit for greenhouse gases, uh, he didn't cite her for some reason. It looks like he wasn't aware of her work. Let's give him kind of a bit of slack here. But Foot in America was an unsung climatologist who was in the early days of climatology. There's another one I love. What's the weird eccentric fact about you? Ah, now, that I wrote a book about science now or a history of science? That's a normal thing to do. That's a normal thing to do. <laughs> um, now, an eccentric fact about me 
God, that's a tough one, Baz. How can I possibly answer that? Probably that I have at least 43 guitars. I play the guitar and I've got far too many. That's not that eccentric, but there you have it. My, my house is full of different types of guitars and half of them don't work and they haven't got strings on them. So I feel guilty, you know. Unstrung guitars. There's an eccentric fact about me. With respect to present company and to Percy, Robert Boyle is probably the greatest Irish scientist. And he wrote a famous list of desiderata, which is a sort of checklist of goals for future scientists. And this was 350 years ago. What has happened and what hasn't happened from that list? Well, it, I'm so glad you've asked me that, because it was done over 350 years ago, you know. And he lists all these things that science should contribute. Many have been achieved. That, that, that just shows you. Like longitude was a big one. He said there should be a way to measure longitude, for instance. You know, he wanted a body armour. That would stop you being killed. And Kevlar was invented there, you know. Now, the ones that haven't been achieved, ageing. He said, can we stop ageing, the ageing process, basically. Now, we've made some advances there, obviously. We understand about ageing, but we can't reverse ageing. That's one thing that we haven't achieved yet that he, he was aspiring to. But many of the stuff he's, he came up with, actually, we've achieved. He talks about um, medicine at a distance. Now, we're not quite sure what he meant by that. Does that mean you can invent some sort of... a uh, ray gun to cure tumours. That kind of is done with radium, you know. But if we could treat treat patients without actually chopping stuff off with a knife or giving them a potential poison, that'd be a real advance. So may, maybe medicine at a distance is one that he, he was predicting that we haven't quite got there yet. But you never know, we may get there in the end. We also haven't discovered how to turn humans into giants and we might have to give up on that one. We may, that's a bit tricky. That's right. <laughs> uh, what role does Star Trek play in inspiring you as a kid, if any? And what Star Trek technologies have been achieved versus what's outstanding? Well, I'm old enough fast to remember the first Star Trek. I hate to say it with William Shatner, you know, and all that. Have you ever seen those ones from the 60s? That, and I was only like six, seven years of age. So it starts for me. I love that Star Trek, the first incarnation of Star Trek. And then when the next generation came along, Jean-Luc himself and there's brilliant data. What a great invention data is, you know. So sadly... I'm a scientist partly because of Star Trek, hand on heart. That's a big reason, you know. One thing I liked was um, Star Trek is very egalitarian. It's, it's, it's the Federation, you know. So at last, the Earth, we've stopped killing each other. Now, we stopped killing each other in Europe, hopefully, although obviously current history tells us something slightly different. But you know, the great triumph of, of, of the UN and NATO, what, the start, what Gene Roddenberry was hoping for, that would happen for the whole world, you know. And that attracted me as an idea that ultimately science might get us to the point where we're not killing each other anymore, you know. Now, in terms of inventions, well, we have lots of them. Like there's an iPad in Star Trek, really, you know. The big one, and the sliding doors, famously, you know. But the one we want is, you know, beam me up, Scotty. Can you imagine if we could do that? <laughs> You wouldn't, there'd be no more carbon footprints with aeroplanes. Imagine if you, if you could do the transporter thing. Wouldn't that be the biggest invention of all? We could be anywhere, anytime. Now, whether that's a good thing or not, I'm not so sure. But certainly, no more long-haul flights. Imagine if I, could, if I could beam someone from Ireland. I'd be sitting beside you now, actually, Baz. We'd be in the same room, wouldn't we? You know, having the conversation face-to-face. So I'd love that one to come true. That'd be brilliant. What are the most important discoveries of your lifetime? Ah, well, now let me think of it. Well, DNA is the, well, mind you, my lifetime, that was after I was born. I think, I think genetics is a big one because obviously we've discovered all the genetic basis for some diseases. The understanding of DNA has been a massive, massive triumph, obviously. Because imagine the world before DNA, we had no notion about heredity, for instance. And in 53, you get the double helix, 61 RNA is discovered. And then in my lifetime, how to manipulate genes and recombinant DNA technology. Now, that was, that was in the late 60s, early 70s. The reason why that's important is many medicines are derived from DNA. 
So for example, insulin for diabetes, we make that now as a DNA-based protein, you know. And then many of the antibodies we use to treat inflammatory diseases, that's based on DNA technology as well. So DNA technology for me has to be the biggest, uh, first of all, fundamental advance. It explains how living systems operate because DNA is in all life, you know, and it replicates. Uh, and then using DNA then to derive new medicines is, is a huge thing. I think. This is also an area that will potentially see explosive growth this century with technologies like CRISPR. Can you tell us about that? Exactly, Vaz. No, but that, CRISPR has yet to be realised because the, the power to edit genes at will, right, that has yet to be achieved. Now, CRISPR is the starting point of that. If we can use CRISPR to specifically target specific genes in humans, you can correct every genetic disease. So cystic fibrosis is the big one we often talk about. Lots of diseases are genetic in nature. And again, correct those genes. And we'll correct them in the sperm and the egg, by the way, or select out sperm and eggs that don't carry those mutations. And those diseases go away. So I, I, we're all very optimistic in the next 10, 20, 30, 40 years that we can deploy those sorts of technologies now to correct these abnormalities. And so many diseases then will be uh, preventable. You know, what the limitation at the moment is you can't deliver the CRISPR into the right cell. That, that's a challenge. And then secondly, there's some off, sometimes off-target effects that other genes get modified inadvertently, you know. But then, then again, these are problems that are trying to be solved. There's, there's a huge amount of research happening to try and crack those problems. Uh, it's also a highly regulated area and one that often inspires fear in people. It does. Well, the big worry would be making the designer humans, you know. Now, now whenever we invent a new technology, there's immediately we worry about it. It seems to be part of our natures to be anxious, you know. So th there's always that case. And we've seen it before. Look at radioactivity and, and, and nuclear science became a bomb, you know. So we've got good reason to be slightly cautious here. And you need regulation. For some reason, us humans need to be regulated. And no more than in the medical area, regulation is critical. Hence the FDA and the EMA and all the various regulators are there. But you're right, though. It's something that we've got to keep an eye on. And then while we're at it, Baz, as you well know, AI, and it does, every time you open something, you read about AI, don't you? That's got to be a hugely powerful tool to use here. And again, that's going to have to be regulated. But deploying AI in medicine is a hugely promising thing. Because again, AI can read every immunology paper ever published in about three seconds, for God's sake, you know? It took a human months to do that. And you can ask a question then and say, what, what do you make of all those papers? Is the answer 42, to use our famous <laughs> story. So in other words, AI is going to be a huge boon. Hence our previous topic there. Discovery will speed up because of AI, no doubt about it. And then we're going to discover all these things as we go along through AI. There's some unexpected figures in this book. You wouldn't necessarily think of Steve Jobs appearing in the history of science, but he does pop up. So will you speak a little bit about that and the role of non-scientists like Jobs in developing and industrializing science and technology? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it begins with the discovery. First of all, if you track it all the way back, idea number one, okay, what's the idea? Do the experiment, get the data, support the contention, have your hypothesis. That's all science, right? If that's useful, how do you turn that into a product is the question then. That needs a whole different set of people. And very often scientists aren't very good at that. Put them in front of investors, they'll put them off, you know, or whatever it is. So you need the Steve Jobs of this world to be scientifically literate enough to see the opportunity and then begin to commercialize. And that involves convincing investors. Like, and it happened to me, in my case, I founded a couple of companies. The venture capitalists are a different breed, you know, but they need to have a certain scientific know-how. And then you raise money, you then commercialize, and then finally you need lawyers, you need um, clinical trial specialists in, in my business, you need all kinds of regulatory people, as we discussed already, to get the thing to market and finally make it. I always say, discovering a new medicine 
is the most difficult thing we humans can do simply because it involves so many skill sets. All these different skills are needed. And then finally, it might fail, you know. And so therefore, it's like walking up Everest backwards is the analogy I've given to discovering new medicine for these reasons, you know. So in other words, it begins with the fundamentals and then gets to the marketplace eventually. But so many people are needed. And Jobs had to have the genius, you might call it, to see the opportunity. Nobody believed him. You know, he was up against it, had to keep making the case for it. So, uh, so his role was critical, as you know, to the whole thing. What's on the horizon in your field and more widely across the sciences? So in my field, the, the big holy grail for us, if I can use a well-worn phrase, is can we crack cancer completely? Now, there's been massive advances in cancer, actually, uh, mainly through the immune system, my own area. So we're now able to activate the immune system to kill tumours. And that's happening in melanoma and in lung cancer. Can we get that better? And, and one prediction we have is we, we've, we've begun to see the progress there. That will get better and better. And eventually, cancer will be no longer a lethal disease. It'll be a chronic disease, potentially. You might cure it, but we'll certainly extend people's lifespans out 5, 10, 15, 20, 30 years. That's one thing that's very exciting. That's, cl- that's close to reality. The one that we're a long way away from is the mind and consciousness. And I've got a chapter in the book on, on, on the mind. Our understanding of, of, of the mind is still very primitive. But can you imagine if we understand the basis for memory, the real molecular basis for memory, shall we say. Um, and then we can then come up with treatments for Alzheimer's and other neurological conditions, including things like schizophrenia, uh, psychiatric disorders. We can't crack those unless we know how the mind works. So we're going to have to see advances in how the mind works. And that, that's a real challenge. But again, we're predicting big advances there. And in fact, in, the, in, the, in that chapter, I talk about these things called engrams. And engrams are a kind of a mechanism to explain memory. So we're seeing progress in the understanding of the mind, but we're a long way off. I think we're going to see lots of progress in the coming decades around how the mind works. Why has it been so difficult to make advances in the study of consciousness and and how the brain works? Well, I think it's a bit like DNA, to be honest. Before DNA was discovered, we had no notion of what genes were. They were just amorphous things, you know? And people thought they'd be proteins, because proteins are much more interesting than DNA. DNA is quite a boring molecule chemically. And yet this gets revealed, the double helix, the sequence of the nucleotides, Unimaginable in the 1920s and 30s that that happened. We need a similar advance in the mind. Something really odd has to be discovered, I suppose, to explain consciousness. And using um, computers as analogies turns out pretty hopeless. You might think computers have memory. Whatever the memory is in a human, it's nothing like a computer really, you know, and that kind of mislead us into those sort of analogies, you know. So conceptually, it's just been very difficult to get ideas around this, you know. And we've no idea where the breakthrough will come. It's almost impossible to say, look, oh, this experiment will open up the doors here. Remember, remember the, the history of science is someone opens a door and now a whole world then emerges through that door. We'll see that with the mind. We're, we're waiting for that door to be open and it's very hard to predict where it's going to come from, to be honest. I think it's also because we're conscious beings, we're using our own minds to understand the mind. Maybe that's a bit difficult. I don't know. <laughs> you know, it's maybe, maybe an AI, a robot might get it and we won't, you know, because whatever the AI system is, it's looking, looking outward at the mind and, and maybe that'll be the way to crack it. Well, some philosophers would in fact argue that that problem is completely intractable. Well, that's the other thing. It could well be. Yeah, no, that's the other possibility. We'll never answer it, I suppose. But if you're a scientist, you've got to be hopeful. You've got to hope that we will crack it. Luke O'Neill, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Thanks so much, Invest. This episode of the podcast starred Luke O'Neill and was produced and presented by me. Luke's new book is To Boldly Go Where No Book Has Gone Before, and it's out now. If you enjoyed the show this week, hit that subscribe button and tell everyone. If you didn't, tell no one. Until next time, I'm Vas Christodoulou. Thanks for listening.